Matt and I have a little cycle, and it's sort of it's kind of funny. We 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 go through our preaching cycle. About the last week, we're like, man, I could really use a break. And then, uh, if you're the one that's off, as you get going, like that next, the last two weeks, like that first sermon is just like on your heart, and you're like, man, I'm I'm ready to go. I'm I'm ready to get started. And um, well, this is my first one, so I'm ready to get started. The uh, it's been a good year, sort of. I mean, if you take out, you know, COVID and everything else. Um, but it's kind of like that, isn't it? I mean, if you think about it, think about, you know, we've lost some pretty incredible people. You know, we've gone through some incredible grief this year. Um, we lost, it's almost a year ago today that we lost Lola. Um, she went, went to be with the Lord. We lost Mr. Bobby this year. We lost Amanda this year. Um, there's been a lot of loss. There's been a lot of loss. And you know what? I hate to say this, but there'll be more loss this year. And there'll be more loss the year after that. There are going to be more struggles. There'll be another strain of COVID, I promise. Well, there will be. Um, there'll be another strain of the flu. There'll be, you know, there's going to be another war someplace. There's going to be more laws passed that go against the Word of God and make it harder for you as a believer to stand for your faith. This is just the reality that we live in. And you know what? Praise God in all of it. This morning we're going we're gonna to look at a passage, and, and for those that have known me for about five minutes or less, um, you'll know that this is my heartbeat. This is, you know, it's funny that the passage in Luke, the first one I get for this year, happens to be on discipleship. What do you know? <laughs> and if, you, if you've been around me for very long, it, um, give you an example of, of how important this is to me. When I was in Charleston, I was a college pastor. And I took our college group to uh, a conference, and they had a, a missionary from Alaska there, and she wanted to talk about and really kind of show how the church had gotten off track and gone in the wrong direction. And so she got three of us college pastors up there, and she stood, stood behind each of us, and she put her hand over her head and said, whenever I put my hand over your head, I want you, the group that came with you to shout out what characterizes you right and and her whole message was she wanted to talk about the fact that discipleship is the core of the church and she does the first guy and they said something I don't even remember what it was the second guy they said something and then step over here and and she hadn't said anything about what her message is yet but it it was kind of we kind of ruined it because she she did this and she put her hand over there and they got discipleship (laughs) you know there's a reason for that It's not because I'm anything special. It's because that's the message that Jesus Christ gave us. That's our mission. You know, one of the things I love, Ms. Pam, I I loved watching you baptize. We've been praying for you for so long. But you know what? You know what really, as, as exciting as that day of baptism was, you know which day was the highlight for me? 
the day I walked into y'all's house for small group and you started talking about you, what you'd been reading every day and that you were trusting the Lord for Chloe and all the situation was going in there, the fact that you were being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Baptism is great, but it's not our mission. It's just a part of the mission. And as we get ready to start the new year, what a great opportunity to say, look, remember, this is what we're about. We're going to delve into a passage that talks about discipleship is costly. You cannot lightly be Jesus' disciple. As a matter of fact, in this passage, you have to understand, here's the setting. Jesus has set his face on Jerusalem. That means he has turned and he has looked and said, I am going to Jerusalem and nothing is going to stop me. And he's going to Jerusalem to die on a cross. And he knows this. And now, as we pick up today, he's, he's getting down towards the southern part of his journey. He's getting very close to Jerusalem, and it's getting very serious. And he starts making statements. He just got through talking about this wedding banquet, and to give you to boil it down into the gist of it, he said, all of you Jews here that are playing at religion, that you were the ones invited to the wedding banquet, and you decided to give excuses why you can't come. So you know what? You're no longer invited. None of you will be at the wedding banquet. And I'm sending my servants out into the highways and the byways. And we're going to get we're going to get the people off the streets. We're going to get the homeless. We're going to get the drug addicts. We're going to go get the robbers and the thieves and the tax collectors. And we're going to bring them into the house. And they're going to have the banquet with us. Now imagine if you're the religious elite. If you're the pastors and the seminary professors of the day and some dude steps up in front of you and says, you ain't coming in. Be a little irked, wouldn't you? A little defensive. But that's basically what Jesus did. Because they didn't get it. They were about their religion. You know, Doing the best we can in coming together and lifting our voices towards God. You know, that's, for the worship team, their, their, their worship sometimes is the work they do to prepare us for the message. For the guys back in the booth, sometimes their worship is making sure you can hear. But in the end, in the end, if we can't mess up, if we can't have a, if we have to be perfect for you to be satisfied, then we've lost, we've lost our way. Our worship is about being disciples of Jesus Christ, lifting and raising his name up high and giving him glory and honor. And that comes from your heart. That comes from Monday through Saturday. Where are you Monday through Saturday? Is today a reflection of that? Or, do you, or is today a mask you put on and you're somebody different? 
See, that's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, and the scribes, they put masks on. And they pretended in front of everyone to be godly. And then they turned around and they were greedy and egotistical and proud. All about themselves. And I wish that we had outgrown that. But the church growth movement. How do you grow the church? There are some guys that used to put out posts all the time talking about, hey, here's how you grow your church. When I first came into ministry, this was the deal. Number one, never ask a stranger to pray. Never put them in a position to pray. Don't have a greeting time. You know why? Because it embarrasses people and and they might struggle and so you don't want to... Turn the lights down so that when people sing, guys don't like to have people see them get emotional, so just turn the lights down so nobody can see you. You got to have a place for people to gather, a coffee shop, a place for them to sit and gather. You got to have the right soap in the bathrooms, and you got to have the right facilities. And these are the things that good men that I love and respect put out and said, this is how you grow a church. Let's see what Jesus says about that. How about, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. We're going to see what Jesus has to say to us who think that that's the way to grow a church. So Luke 14, beginning in verse 25. Stand on your feet if you can or will. (laughs) Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it uh, begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with tens of thousands to meet him who who comes against him with twenty thousand? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt tastes good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Well, Father, as we talk about the cost of discipleship, if, as we talk about the value of discipleship, Lord, I pray that you would guide us and that this would be a message that shapes our mission for the year. And I pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.
you know, I want to answer uh, a couple of questions this morning. You know, uh, I want to I answer the question, why is it that we push discipleship so hard? When we walk out of here this morning, I want you to know why it's so important that we keep discipling one another. Now, there's a lot that I could do, like a whole sermon series on, on how to make disciples. But this morning, we're just going to talk about why we're making disciples. Another question we want, what does it mean or, or what does it cost you to be a disciple? There are some of you out, out here this morning who are not this, at this moment disciples of Jesus Christ. You're, you're sitting there, you're, you, you may be, there are people here this morning that are in love with the idea of Jesus, but not yet in love with Jesus. And from our standpoint, I, Matt and I, actually I would say everybody in this church, what I would tell you is, that's okay. We would rather have you there and honest than to have you thinking you're a disciple of Jesus Christ when really you're just in love with the idea of Jesus Christ. We'd rather you, ha- you know that and be honest with yourself. So we're okay with that. Every single one of us started our journey the same way. And so we're not threatened by the fact that, that you're still in, in process, that you're still learning, and it, it's okay. But this morning, I want, what I want you to realize is the decision you have before you is costly. We don't want you to make a, this lightly. We want you to make this decision fully counting the cost. And so we're going to talk about what does it mean or what does it cost you? And I want to kind of lay out there, what can we expect as our future if we are a body of believers that are made up of true disciples of Jesus Christ? Because I think it matters. I think it matters. So what we're going to, we're going to look at why we do it, what's it mean or cost, and what should we see because of it. Now, as we begin, you know, Jesus says, now great crowds were accompanying him. All right, now this is the first sign you're going to get that Jesus would not have been a fan of all those church, church growth uh, tweets and and. Uh, podcasts and everything that, that he got put out. He would not have been a fan because continually, every time as he's heading towards Jerusalem, and this is getting more and more serious, every time you see him gather great crowds, he does something like tell them, hey, you know, if you want to follow me, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. <laughs> right? And this is going to be another one of those moments. Now, great crowds have accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even your very own life, you cannot be my disciples. Yeah. You notice Jesus wasn't impressed by the great numbers that were following him. Jesus can do more with 12 true disciples 
than any megachurch can do with 10,000 pretenders. I want you to think about that. God can do more with a little handful and smattering of true disciples than the church down the street with 10,000 pretenders. And I'm not saying there's a church down, down the street that doesn't have true disciples that are, okay, so I'm, I'm not naming anybody, but I just want you to realize the economy of God's, economy, of God's kingdom is discipleship. True disciples, not religion. It's not about a church show. It's not about packing a building out. It's not about you walking out of here going, oh, I was so excited about the energy level in the service today. Oh my gosh, the conversations that come back and I'm just like, oh. It doesn't mean that you can't have both. The problem is it's rare. It's just rare. And if you find both, hallelujah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just one should be the overflow of the other and not the other way around. Our worship should be an overflow of discipleship. And the word disciple means learner. Our job is to be getting to know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a phrase we're going to use in a few moments that kind of captures this. But you've got to realize that's got to be our goal. So, Ms. Pam, the baptism was amazing, but it's the chasing after him and, and le- loving him and learning and, and watching you take it from up here to here to out there. That's what's got me so pumped up and excited. That's what it means you have become a true disciple and not a convert. How many of us know someone? If you, if you know someone, if you know someone, that got converted, but you never saw any change in their lives. Raise your hand. Yeah. We're not here to convert. We are not here to convert. As a matter of fact, being a convert is cheap and easy. You bow your head, you close your eyes, you say a prayer. Go get baptized, and you're a convert. To be a disciple you have to change from the inside out immediately, and then you've got to continue to walk in that for the rest of your life. Jesus' words, you have to hate. Now, the word there is missio. Now, uh, there are a lot of people, if you read through sermons and, and 
commentaries. There are so many people who want to take that and, and soften that word hate. Guys, it's the exact same word that the Scripture uses when it says that God hates workers of iniquity. Everywhere else the word is used, it, it's used for things like abhor, detest. It is about hostility. So let's, use, let's swap these. It, that Instead of just hate, it says, if anyone does not have hostility towards, if does, they do not detest, they do not abhor their father and their mother and their wife and their children and their brothers and their sisters, and yes, even your very own life, you cannot be my disciples. Now, wait a minute. Didn't God say we're supposed to love one another? Husbands are supposed to love your wives? So, here's the thing. Jesus is using what is called hyperbole here. Radical hyperbole. And let me give you an example. If I said that... Uh, if I said that... Um, so, Charles, Charles is in over his head on his next sermon preparation. You would probably think, well, he's struggling a little bit. He's, you know, he, he, he's missing some of the tools and whatnot. But if I were to tell you that, okay, you know, with this sermon prep, man, he is at the bottom of the ocean, buried in a pile of rocks with nothing but the air he has in his lungs. <laughs> you, you, you would, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he ain't going to make it. That's hyperbole. That's radical hyperbole. It's saying, yeah, it's taking something that's a, 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 a middle-of-the-road statement and go, oh, well, he'll be okay. And going, no, 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 no. You have to understand this is how severe it is. When Jesus says you have to hate, here's the thing. He is not devaluing your father and your mother and your husband or your wife or your, or your children or your own life. What he's showing you is just how high the value of Jesus Christ is. What he's saying is, is that you have to be so sold out, so trusting, so believing, so, in, so into him. That the ones that are closest to you in life, and even your own life, is worthless in comparison. Flip over, if you will, to Matthew chapter 13 in your Bibles. This is not going to be on the screen, so two little short parables. I'm just going to read them. Beginning in verse 44, it's the parable of a hidden treasure and the parable of a pearl of great value. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. In the parable, all that they had wasn't without value. It's just that it was, it was without value when compared to what they found. The hidden treasure and the pearl of great price so dwarfed 
what they already had, that they didn't even think twice about giving it all away in order to gain this. To be Jesus' disciple, you have to see Him for who He is. And you have to see yourself for who you are. You've got to realize that the God you serve spoke and the universe came into being. He spoke and hung galaxies we still can't even count in place. He spoke and everything we know about the world instantly came to be all the organization, all the physics, all of the laws of the, of the universe. He spoke and they happened. All of these things were in His mind. Things we can't even figure out how to make a dent in discovery. They came from Him at, the, at just a word. And you think you've got something that's, that's not worth giving up to have Him as your Savior? You're selfish. You know, I, I feel very comfortable looking at you and going, you're selfish. You know how I know that? Because I'm selfish. <laughs> And I see it in you guys. I see me and you every day. We're all selfish. Prideful? Any of you guys have pride? Yeah. If, if you think you don't, the easiest thing to do is ask somebody to criticize you. <laughs> ask somebody to tell them, hey, what's my biggest flaws? And sit... And then when they go, hey, sit down for a while. <laughs> do, do, you get, when that happens, don't you feel the heat rise up in your face? Get a little angry and a little flushed? That's pride. Anybody ever, ever, anybody ever have a two-year-old? Yeah, they're not sinners, are they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, terrible twos. You know what's worse? Threes, because then they can talk also. <laughs> terribler. Yeah, the terribler threes. Guys, did we ever really have anything to begin with? We were lost and dead in our sins. The things of this world will perish. They bring no satisfaction. How many of you guys have ever been satisfied by that, that thing you've been dreaming about? You've wanted for Christmas forever. Remember as a kid, you dreamed about this thing. I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it. How long did you, how long did you on average, what, what, what would be an average time? Still? Never got it? Don't worry about it. Let me, uh, let me help you here. Okay, how many of you guys got that thing that you really wanted for Christmas? How long did it last before it was like part of the landscape and didn't matter? 
Huh? A month. And that's, Kyle sticks to it. He's stubborn. Most people, it's three days. You watch, you watch, look, I, four kids, four kids, they get something for Christmas. I'm telling you, three days later, where is that? I don't know. <laughs> it's broken, I think. <laughs> what do we really have? What do we really have that's not worth giving up? To follow Jesus. Hating your family and even your own lives, really what it is, it is so trusting in Christ and His goodness and His plan and His way, His will, that you put no hope in anything else. That you put no hope in anything else. We always talk about radically following this word. Even the back, see, the back of our shirts? Radically loving? How do you radically do anything? You've got to be sold out. You've got to truly believe in what you're doing to be radical. How many people do you know? How How many of us How many times have I done what Scripture said because I wanted to appear a certain way? How many times have I disciplined my children not because I was concerned about their heart or where they were going, but because I was embarrassed by their actions? To trust in Jesus, His goodness, His plans, His will. His way. It is to obey the Word of God, not because of appearances, not because of the way you look. See, we talked about that, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. And oftentimes, people who are trying to grow the church through every means other than discipleship. So often, we do what's in Scripture to look good. Not because we trust. For you to radically be obedient, you have to trust Him be without doubt. For you to get on an airplane and to take your, your family into a mostly Muslim country up in the mountains full of snow and cold and misery during the winter, you need to be doing it because you trust the call that God has put on your life and not trying to, to, to look a certain way for people. You guys that are in recovery, can't fake it, can you? Doesn't work. I'm just going to tell you flat out, they'll say, a, they'll say a, a higher power. If your higher power isn't Jesus Christ, it's an idol. There's only one who is trustworthy. There's only one who can radically change your life. You're going to give up something that has been your habit. It has been your coping mechanism. It has been your way of, of, of fighting boredom and everything else, right? You're going to give that up. 
The thing you're giving it up for better be more than, a, than some figment of your imagination. It better be a God who spoke and put the universe in place. Who changing your heart from the inside out is nothing but a joy for Him. Hating your family in your own life is not about devaluing your family. It is about seeing the extreme value in trustworthiness and goodness of Jesus Christ. It's recognizing that in comparison you have nothing. Absolutely nothing. That the things you're giving up to follow Jesus Christ, you never really had anyways. And here's the cool thing. When you do that, and you start following His Word, you start loving people not because they, they're doing something for you or you're getting something from them. You're doing it only because He told you to. Only because you trust that, him, that you loving them as He commanded you to is good. It's no longer based on merit or gain. Now tell me this. Who in here wouldn't like to be loved by someone without any expectations? Doesn't it feel good when somebody loves you just because? And that if you disappoint them, they still love you? That's what being a disciple produces. We gave up this selfish, self-centered love for our family. And instead, we gave ourselves wholly over to Jesus Christ. We trust Him, and because we trust Him, we love them. And we love them in spite of themselves. Only because He said to. Do you see how this works? I always like to say, God is the ultimate judo artist. You know, in judo, the whole thing is about you take somebody's momentum and weight and shift it, and then you turn it. God has a way of taking what we think and the world thinks, and, he, and we, ru- we rush at him, and then he just, like, he just flips it and sends it back in the other direction. So we're thinking we've got to hang on to everything. We've got to cling to these things. You know, look, for those of us who have, you know, there's this fine line. In the church world, the homeschool world, you know, when we, when we do those things, so often there are so many people who are talking about their kids, the, the value of their kids, the value of their kids, the value of their kids. It is such a fine line. It is so easy to step over with all the right intentions, to, but still yet step over and go, all of a sudden, your kids are more important than Christ. in work it is so easy brother kyle this is my prayer for you this is it is so easy it it is look i've been there it is so easy to step over the line and start putting value on my work and and who i am through that over christ Husbands and wives can do the same thing. 
It's easy. It sneaks up on you. You don't even realize it's happening. You must stay in that place where you recognize none of this has any value compared to Jesus Christ. The value assigned to it by Jesus Christ is what truly makes it valuable. God will give you work. He will give you kids. He will give you a spouse, maybe. But maybe not. Maybe he won't give you kids. Maybe you'll be unemployed. But he's still God, and he's still good, and he's still trustworthy, and you can still walk in his plan, and you'll be just fine. As a matter of fact, it's that, you know, I, well, so Pastor Sonny, he was my boss down in Charleston. His wife used to put this so well when she talked, said when they got married, she looked at him and said, you will never be first in my life. Never. Jesus will always be first. But because he's first, you'll be the luckiest man on the face of the planet. That's the way it works. When Jesus Christ is truly first in your life, the people around you are blessed. Jesus goes on, he says, as if that's, okay, you know, hate your father, your mother, brother. If, if, they, there might have been a few stragglers that are like, okay, I can do that because they're really rotten people anyways. And yeah, I hate my life, so yeah, I can be your disciple. Then he says, okay, well, I got one for you. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, I want you to think about the cross. Do a little history on the cross. The first introduction the Jews would have had to the cross was when the Assyrians came in and raided the northern kingdoms. And they would have, and they used a cross that didn't have a crossbar. It was just a pole. And they would hang people from it and kill them slowly over and usually it took a day or two to die it was it was a form of torture that led to death then the romans came in and the romans instituted their form of of crucifixion it sometimes had a crossbar sometimes it didn't but obviously jesus is going to have a crossbar on, on, on his cross this is not something the jews invented it is something that was forced upon them it was disgraceful You'd be stripped down naked. Your crimes usually posted. Crowds would gather and jeer. You're branded a criminal. There is shame and guilt because you're guilty. You've been convicted. So it's not, like, it's not even like you're innocent and suffering because... You didn't do anything. You're suffering for what you deserve. How many of you guys ever get, have to suffer for what you actually did? Isn't that the worst? <laughs> At least if you get, you're suffering for something that you didn't do, you, you kind of feel like a little, I don't know, a little justification. Like, man, this isn't right, but hey, I didn't do anything wrong. But when you're suffering for what you did, it's just like you just hang your head. That's the cross. And ultimately, it's death. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, you have to 
carry that every day. When we come to salvation, there, there's a lot of disagreement over this, but I, it, as is often the case when guys are talking, it, they're, they're either or. I think this is a both-and situation. You come to Jesus Christ through the cross. His death, burial, and resurrection is what offers us forgiveness. But here's the thing. When He makes you alive, you die to self. When He makes you alive, it's not that your sins are are like they didn't happen. It's that the bottom line is they're paid for as if they never had. So that they can never be brought up again to be punished because they've already been punished. When it says God remembers them no more, it's saying, we're not bringing it up again. It's done. Finished. Payment made in full. The shame and the guilt and the pain and the death were borne by Jesus Christ on His cross in your place. You have to remember that. The quickest way to becoming a Christian hypocrite is to forget that you're a sinner saved by grace. The quickest way. Because all of a sudden you think you're better than somebody else because you do something, you wear something, you look a certain way. You speak a certain way. Stay grounded. You come to Jesus Christ through the cross. You live for Jesus Christ through the cross. Pick up that cross every single day. If you could start every single day with, I am a sinner saved by grace and I don't deserve it. And if that's the way you started your day, I will just tell you, being a disciple of Jesus Christ would be an exciting thing. And it's not about beating yourself up. It's about a heart of gratitude and trust. I mean, the creator God of the universe came down and lived as a baby. Diapers changed. For you. So he could bring you into God's family as an adopted child so he could go to the cross and pay for your sins so you could be forgiven you have to bear your cross for salvation and to live in salvation so often you know, we say, hey, I have, you know, you have a problem and you say, this is my cross to bear. While I get the analogy, you know, pain and, pain and suffering for Jesus Christ's name is not our cross that we bear. The cross that we bear is the fact that we were sinners and we we're saved by grace. And we trust in his plan. 
if God is sovereign and he's in control and you're trusting him, how can you say that the burdens that are coming your way are crosses? Because then you're saying God is the one giving you the cross. Your punishment. The cross you bear every single day is the fact that you are a sinner saved by grace. Sometimes the things you would think are crosses are the very graces of God. Charles, God has blessed you with being able to disciple a bunch of people. Right? You had to go live in apartments at Solutions in a crowd and noisy and all of that in order to do that, right? So was living in that environment a cross to bear or was it a blessing? Exactly. Lottie Moon. We're, we're in Lottie Moon season. We're collecting money for foreign missions. Right? Was her starvation a cross to bear or a blessing? She loved her people dearly. And because of her sacrifice and because of the way she's, she's been used, God has used her name to raise billions of dollars to send missionaries all over the world for over 100 years. If I could tell you that you could, that everything that you, if you could give up eating and, and starve to death in the next three months, but, be, but from that, entire waves of missionaries are going to go all over the world and that there are going to be thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of churches planted, not believers, churches planted. Who, would, who here would, be, would starve to death voluntarily for that? I would. In a heartbeat. The only reason I say this is sometimes it's so easy to make bearing a cross about us. That it's all about us. That I have to go do this. Bearing your cross It's not about what you're doing. It's about who you're following. Remember, Jesus is asking nothing of us that he didn't already do. His closest disciple was Peter. When Peter tried to dissuade him from going to Jerusalem and dying, he said, oh, I love you. So Peter, maybe I'll I'll, I'll slow down and back off a little bit, right? Is that what Jesus said? No. No. Get behind me, Satan. In that moment when Peter put himself above the Father in his will, Jesus Christ hated Peter. Get behind me, Satan. He took Peter and he put him in the right place. Obedience to the Father stayed, stayed for. Jesus Christ humbled himself. And he took on our sins on the, on the cross. He carried his cross. He's not asking us to do anything that he wasn't going to do and showed us the way. 
And the cross has always been about salvation. Doesn't mean that you're not going to have troubles in this life and that he's not going to carry them through you, you through them and you don't take them to him. But guys, I'm just going to tell you over and over and over and over again, if you read stories of great Christians, their greatest works came from their greatest sufferings. Robertson McQuilkin, president of, of a univer, of a seminary, mission, world life missionary. You know when he actually started making the greatest impact for the kingdom? After about year 20 of taking care of his wife with Alzheimer's. Because people wanted to know where did that kind of love come from. Anybody can lead a seminary and anybody can be a missionary, but where does that kind of love come from? And all of a sudden he had, he had a voice he had never had before. A friend of mine, his brother was shot and killed in Atlanta. 700 kids got saved at his funeral because he lived day in and day out on campus sharing the gospel. William Carey, uh, Stuart's dad's namesake. He is the guy who actually founded the whole idea of us identifying unreached people groups and, and sending missionaries to unreached people groups. And he, he grew up in a time where there was a lot of what we call hyper-Calvinists, hyper-reformed, right? Who's, who basically said, hey, if God wanted the savages saved, he'll do it without our help. So don't go on missions. Not what Calvinism, reformed theology is about, but that's where they were. He had to take people who had given him his first pastorates, who had given him mentoring and tutoring and, and had his back while he was in, in England. He had to basically ignore them and go around their backs in order to get to India and start his mission work in India. He had to overcome the East India Trading Company who wanted him arrested because he was sharing the gospel and upsetting the culture and printing Bibles for the Indian culture, but I'll tell you what, Stuart's here today. And the gospel got to India primarily through the efforts of William Carey and his friends. And we get a direct blessing. But he had to suffer. He lost children. His wife went insane. His printing presses burned. It was through adversity and difficulty that God's greatest work was done. Yeah. So listen, I'm not trying to shake your world on this. I want you to understand carrying your cross is about carrying the gospel. And when you carry the gospel, you so trust Jesus Christ that even when the whole world is falling apart around you and it's difficult and it's hard, you trust that he has a plan. I know Matt and Jessica, you guys went through this. When Guatemala fell through, right? And you're sitting there going, what in the world, God? Well, turn and look. This is in the world. Um, 
I just want to caution you against taking everything that is going on this negative in your life and saying this is a cross to bear. It's just, it's a path. The cross you bear is the fact that you're a sinner saved by grace. Live in that every day. Bearing your cross, dying to yourself, killing sin, walking in radical obedience. Chasing after him. There's a phrase that the Jews used of rabbis. I said, I want to I walk in the dust of the rabbi. What it meant was, I want to get so close to my rabbi, to my teacher, that the dust that he stirs up as he's walking covers me. I want to walk in his dust. Think about that. How many of us want to walk so close to Jesus that, we, that the dust of his feet cover us? That's what's up. Our goal isn't to pack this building out. If God chooses to do that, great. But you know what the real goal is? That each one of us will walk in the dust of our Rabbi Jesus. That we will walk in the dust of our Savior that we will become more and more like him, that every day we will reflect, we will become a clearer and clearer and clearer reflection to the world of who Jesus Christ really is. That's why we do discipleship. And the reason I'm not interested for you guys that are struggling with, hey, do I do I do I do this or not? I don't want you to make an easy believism decision. I want you to count the cost. This whole passage, I'm just going to, we're not going to read all of it right here again, but this about building a tower and going to war and counting it, the costs and planning beforehand. I want you to know what the decision is. It isn't about getting baptized and looking good and getting your fire, your, your, your fire insurance so you don't burn in hell. It's about looking and going, this is the creator God of the universe who died for my sins. I am a worthless sinner. I need him because I have no hope anywhere else. I surrender to you because I see no other option. And then you live every day in that. Church, if I could say one thing, if you could do one thing for me every day, if I could do one thing Every day, this is what I would want it to be. Surrender afresh. Every day. In every decision, in every moment, surrender. How many of you guys have uh, felt the Holy Spirit prompt you to do something and then not done it? Isn't it embarrassing when you walk, when God says talk to somebody and you walk by and you go, mm, awkward, it, no time. It, and then you get out to the parking lot, you get in your car, and you start to drive away, and the Holy Spirit won't let you go, and you have to go park and go back and talk to the person. <sighs> so much better to just do it the first time. <laughs> That's where I want us to live as a church. That's who I want us to be as disciples. Not easy believism, 
not trying to make ourselves feel better with numbers. Here's what we want. We want, we want a year where next year we can tell stories about the radical things God has done through our obedience. That we can just marvel at what it is that, that he's asked us to do. Count the cost of discipleship. If you want to follow Jesus, it's going to cost you everything. That's what he said. If you're not willing to give up everything, you, can't, you cannot. Now, the, the Greek word for cannot means it can't. <laughs> okay? You cannot. He won't let you. Get that? He won't let you be his disciple if you don't give up everything. Do you get that? We think he needs us. In some warped way, we think he needs us. And so therefore, we think, you know, if I get baptized and I do this and I do this and I look this way and I look that way, then gosh, he'll be pleased and and he'll have to bless me or something like that. And he looks at you and goes, not yet. You ain't my disciple yet. You can't. Not like that. Can't. You cannot be his disciple unless you give up everything for him. Why is it so powerful for you guys in recovery? Because if you get this, You'll give up everything, including your addiction, for him. That's why a God of your own choosing isn't sufficient. Because no God of your own choosing is worthy of that kind of sacrifice. But the God who chooses you is. Thank you, Dee preaching my sermon and let's be honest as you're thinking about giving up everything do you really have anything at all we don't Jesus ridiculous hyperbole is actually an understatement we really don't have anything to give up other than our sin. Now, what would it look like if we were living as disciples? Well, let's start with what would it look like if we, don't li- if we don't live like disciples? Jesus says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, to understand this, you have to understand, we have refined salt, right? When you open the salt shaker, it's pure salt. So this analogy kind of doesn't make a lot of sense for us. They had raw salt. They mined it out of the earth, and it had other elements in it, iron and whatever else. Okay, and so when it lost its saltiness, it just became a bunch of junk out of the earth and it, and it didn't have its flavor and it was just nasty. 
when you and I are not walking in the dust of the rabbi, if we are not reflecting Jesus Christ, if we are not his disciples, putting him first above everything else, then we're worthless. We're worthless. We're not even good to be used as fertilizer to grow something else. Sometimes we think, you know, well, I'm not great, but at least maybe I can be a part of something. No, actually, you're detrimental. You're destructive. It can't, it can't, it's not any good to taste anymore, but if I've, even if I put it in the manure pile, what it does is it kills the crops. That explains so much of what you see in the church. There are so many people out there that are so not following after Jesus Christ, so not walking in the dust of the rabbi, they've become salt that has lost its taste. They don't look like salt anymore. They don't taste like salt anymore. And they're destructive. And the only thing they're good for is to be thrown out and trampled on the ground. But what we do is, because we don't trust God, and we feel like we have to pack the pews and we can't offend anybody, and if, the, and if we do the hard thing, the church is gonna, not going to grow, we let people like that have their way in the church, and they destroy church after church after church after church. I'm going to be really blunt. One of the reasons that I want a pastor without pay is I don't want anybody like that having any sway over the decisions I make as a pastor. I mean, I hate to say it, but that what happens so often is that people like that in the church start threatening the pastor, and if it's his only way he makes money and it's the only thing he has and he feeds his family and whatnot, the guy runs in fear. I don't, I don't ever want to have that. If a wolf comes in here and starts poisoning us, I think Matt and I, we're in a good spot. We can, we can protect you and we can challenge. I would rather have a handful of disciples than a building full of people who have lost their saltiness. See, we've got a mission. In the Navy, you used to have guys that would, would lead this way. We'd go on six-month deployments. You'd come back. They'd try to be kind to the guys and give them more time off because, hey, you know, we've been away from your families and give you more time off. But some guys would get so carried away with it, they'd forget that we still had a job to do and work to do and that the fact we were working on the ship while we were home was getting it ready to go on deployment for the next time it was needed. And if the ship didn't get underway on time, we either couldn't respond to the needs of the Navy or somebody else would have to stay on station and miss their family for a couple more months while we were fixing ourselves. In other words, they would lose sight of the mission in order to try to take care of their people. And the funny thing is, their people eventually began to expect that. And so when they had to, you know, as sin always does, 
And when they had to go correct it, all their people got angry because now they had to work extra hours instead, instead of getting to go home early. And, you know, if they didn't get to go home early, instead of being, you know, oh, well, look what he did for me yesterday. He goes, why? This stinks. I, why do I have to stay today? It's, it's funny. Human nature. You have to remember we have a mission. And if we're not accomplishing the mission, there's no reason for us to be here. There is no reason for us to be here if we're not making disciples. So we could do everything. Matt and I both have been through church planting training. I'm just telling you, there's a formula. There is a formula. And if we followed the formula, we could pack this building out. I promise you. We could do that. But that's not the mission. That's not the mission. And guess what? All it creates is a bunch of spoiled people who expect things to be about them. And they're not about the mission either. And so when you do finally have to call on them to do the mission, all they do is get angry and leave. Give me a handful of people who are on mission. I am so incredibly blessed. When we ride in the car and you start talking about somebody, a new guy you're listening to on sermons and talking to your coworkers, when I hear you guys talking about how you're talking at work and how you're sharing, when I, talk, when I hear about how you going home and spending time with your families and, and, and you reflecting Christ and them seeing changes, when I see families restored and changes happen, when I see people handling tragedies with grace, I'm overwhelmed with gratitude because that's what it looks like to have a church that's living as disciples. And if we're not living as disciples, religion apart from discipleship is worthless. Not even worth being put into the fertilizer pile. Discipleship demands Christ alone. He's everything. Everything. Christ demands radical following. Picking up your cross, following after Him, being obedient to His commands. And here's the cool thing. Radical following demands radical love. So the very ones that at the beginning that He said, you have to hate them, if you hate them, in other words, if you put them as down here with his value up here, it's not even like, you know, it, there for a while it was really kind of cool in the church to go, yeah, well, God's my number one priority, but right behind him is my, my wife. And then right behind them is our kids, right? And sometimes somebody would swap those two and go, yeah, my kids are more important than my spouse and yeah, whatever. Look, it's not even, there's no close second. It's Christ is up here. And everything else, it might be floating on top of the gutter, but it's still in the gutter. That's how, that's how extreme this is. But when you do that, following this Christ whom you're so sold out to and so trusting demands that you radically love those around you. As Harriet said, you'll never be first 
But as long as Christ is first in my life, you'll be the luckiest person to walk the face of the planet. You know, there's an exercise I'd like for you guys to try sometime this year. Read the, uh, get a red, red letter Bible. You know what a red letter Bible is? The words of Jesus are in red. And just read through the red letters and find all, and write down all the commands of Jesus Christ. Just write down all the, all, all the things he said, go do this. I, I've got about 14 pages of them here, but I'm, I'm just going to read a few. Learn what it, what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. All who are weary and burdened, come to me. Be on your guard. Some of these are paraphrased, just so you understand. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Humble yourself. Become like a child. Don't look down on little ones. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Forgive seven times, seventy times. Be a servant leader. Love the Lord your God and your neighbor. Don't do as the Pharisees. Be the least. Be about your work. Be on guard. Be faithful. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything he has commanded. That is a small, small, small spattering of commands of Jesus Christ. Do you see what a church living as sold out, trusting disciples would be like? We would do all of those things, not because of what we expect to get, but only because he said, go do it. How cool will that be? So let's pray. Lord, make us radically sold out disciples. It's not in our power, Lord. Our flesh is there. Help us to to kill our flesh and to kill our sin. Lord, help us to love your word. And then, Father, just let us live it out. Let us reflect you, Jesus. Let us be so close to you, walking in, walking in your footsteps so closely that people kind of get confused where, where you end and we begin. And I, just, I just pray that that would be the case, Lord. I know that's a, that's a lot to ask. But, Father, Show us what a church like that made up of people that are walking like that would look like. Let us bring you glory and honor through the way we live, the way we think, the way we love each other. Lord, the unity of our church and as we increase in knowledge of you, both in our heads, in our hearts, in our actions. Lord, let this be a year that this time next year when Matt's up here preaching and he says, look what God did. Or if Charles is up here and he's going, look what God did. Or somebody who hasn't even gotten to preach yet. Lord, let us stand in amazement at what, we, what you do simply because we do what you say. And we do what you say simply because we trust you. In Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.